I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Although Black architects attain the same education, perform on the same project teams, and complete similar project types, historically their credentials are questioned and their work often goes unnoticed. We're here to change that. I'm Karen Burton. And I'm Sandra Little. And this is Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E. The podcast where the world can get to know the very significant contributions contemporary and trailblazing architects have made to the profession, the community, and major cities across the U.S. All right, we're in another episode Season one is moving along. We're almost at the end of season one. So thank you, everyone who is uh, listening in. Thank you for your feedback. If you have not subscribed already, please do subscribe and send us some comments and reviews. Review us on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever you listen to your podcast. We certainly appreciate that. And share it with your friends, because as some of the feedback we've heard is that this is more than architecture. It's about more than architecture. So uh, I think you will agree. So keep listening. You can reach out to us uh, directly at hello at noirdesignparty.com as well. If you have some more um, direct questions you would like Karen and I to respond to. Karen would be better than I, but... I don't know why you say that. <laughs> I don't know no, why please. you say that. That is not true. <laughs> please reach out. We are interested in hearing direct comments back as well. So today we are talking with Imani Day. Imani 
came to Detroit in 2015. Uh, she wanted to focus on community-oriented work and designing and building socially inclusive spaces. Imani is a licensed architect now. She got licensed here in Michigan since she's been working here. Uh, she's writer and a founder and the founder of Revision Studios. Uh, she's originally from New Jersey, and she graduated from Cornell University School of Architecture. So we have a lot of people here in Detroit who went to Cornell. So, yeah, that's very uh, And true. we've interviewed, wow, at least two this season, maybe three. And we've got a couple, at least one, coming up next season. So that's very interesting how the people from Cornell land here. They they say that, too. Uh, the Cornell grads are everywhere. And uh, I know, like I said, we've had other in the planning department that worked at uh, uh, Cornell as well. And I went to Cornell. Right. Yeah, they're they're taking over. But this is a great place to be. That's why they're, that's why they're coming here. Detroit is, is attracting the thought leaders in the profession. So excited to have them to come here and contribute to our architecture profession. So you could say Imani started her career at the top. She started off in New York uh, working for Robert Stern, and then she moved on to Diller Scafidio. And when she came here to Detroit, she worked with Gensler uh, here in the Detroit office before she started her own uh, architecture studio. Imani is a writer, as we said before, and she's had some very profound commentary on the architecture profession and architecture as it relates to the community and social justice. She is currently uh, a teaching fellow, design teaching fellow at Cornell. She's back at Cornell, and she has previously taught at Florida A&M University and University of Detroit Mercy. Uh, and she was also um, an editorial fellow with Columbia University's Avery Review. I've I've been totally impressed by Amani and her writing. Um, she's done like three different op eds for Architect Magazine, and as Karen and I are always talking about, that's our next step, right? Writing a book. So I have to say, I look up to her for that. Yes, learning the discipline of writing as design professionals. I think that's something we need to embrace a little bit more to get out to the world and let them know some of the thought processes behind our work. And she's done a great job at that. Yes. So here is Imani Day. So we are looking forward to hearing about Imani's path through architecture and uh, how she got started and what she's doing now. And she's really busy doing a lot of different <laughs> things, but it's exciting. And she has a smile on her face. So <laughs> after a long day, so it's great. She's still making it. She's still right, making it, right? Right, right. I am right. trying. <laughs> so welcome, Imani. Welcome to Hidden in Plain Sight. Uh, this is our podcast about the work the careers, the projects of Black architects who have journeyed through Detroit, are working in Detroit, or at some point have worked in Detroit and made their impact, they've made an impact here. So we're glad to have you with us today. 
Awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of this. Thank you. We think it's great to have a, it's going to be like a collection of our stories, right? When we get done with this, it's like, it's, it's, uh, Karen and I always say we never anticipated doing a podcast, but now we're doing it. We're like, hey, this is the best thing, right? People will be able to listen to this from years from now and say, oh man, it was all of these great black architects coming through doing all this great work in Detroit. So we're happy to have you. Awesome. Yeah. I know that, uh, we have been trying to record uh, stories from my dad and from like my family has like a an interesting history of trying to record our stories and mm-hmm. it doesn't really like naturally come to people that you should be recording the stories but right. I'm that we're doing it just because like you don't get them back you don't you don't get a chance to ask after after a certain point so yeah and you don't get a chance to hear people's voices Right. You know, that was one of the things I craved after my mother passed away. I was like, I was looking Mm -hmm. through like wedding videos of me and my sister's weddings Mm -hmm. just to hear my mom talk. Yeah. So it is important. It is a very important. It's very important to, you know, like like I said, our whole thing has been with Noir Design Party is history. And we are learning uh, how important it is right now. We're just because of our numbers uh, of African-Americans in the profession. We are making history on a daily basis. Absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolutely. So, so we have to we have to keep up with it. We, we didn't, you know, we stepped into this career not knowing and it's like that. But right. we are history makers. So we appreciate you uh sharing your story today and how we kind of start off every podcast as we ask uh, our guest, what is your Detroit or Michigan design story? So if you could tell us how you got to Detroit and your journey. Yeah, so Technically, I'm from Atlanta, uh, but I moved to New Jersey when I was eight or nine. And I had spent a ton of time in the New York and New Jersey area. I went to school in upstate New York. My uh, family is kind of from the Westchester, and we have some Southern roots for sure. But I spent a ton of time in Westchester, New York, and New Rochelle. And then I worked in New York City for a few years, maybe four or five years at these kind of larger architect firms, which uh, I was really grateful and excited to work at those places. But after a while, I just started to ask some questions about the bigger impact that these firms might've been having. I rarely, if ever, saw a black client or even many black people in the offices. Um, I was usually one of two or one of one. And I would say most of the other Black people were probably in administrative positions, nothing, no knock to it, just they weren't necessarily designing sitting next to me in the trenches, you know, at 2 a.m. when a competition's due or something like that. So really having those people around was just not really a thing, both in school and then uh, in my work. I paused in maybe 2013, 2014 to start thinking about other places I could go that might have a different impact and places where perhaps as a younger black female designer, the impact of my existence and my um, my approach to things, my understanding of different sorts of communities would be something that would just matter more. In New York City, it's possible to matter for sure. But I believe the market there, especially for super large projects, a lot of times is so saturated and it's really hard as a 22, 23 year old to really imagine that you go off on your own and you make it um, there because I had only really experienced these humongous projects, like never even, I mean, the smallest project I maybe ever worked on was 
still relatively large and it was maybe somebody's third penthouse or something like that, which I usually say is just like to put things in perspective. Now I'm working on people being able to even get into a home or afford a home, Mm -hmm. afford to be able to buy a home after years and years of either being displaced for one reason or another. And so it just kind of occurred to me over time, like, this is great. The training is great. We have to kind of shift into a different world and a different position. And so I started looking for different places to live. Oakland was an option. New Orleans was an option. I was looking for cities that I was maybe more familiar with. And a friend of mine, two friends of mine actually, introduced me to Detroit. They were investing here and encouraged me to come as an architect to kind of consult on some of their projects. So I came and my NOMA network, I talked to Kim Dowdell. I said, I'm going to Detroit. What should I do? Um, And she sent me to a NOMA conference, which was in Philly at the time. And I met Tiffany Brown and I met actually Tiffany Brown through Antoine Bryant because he's very tall and I could find him very fast and he's a Cornellian. (laughs) So I was like, I'm going to find this guy first. That's right. You're all Cornell grads. You are all. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, And so I found Antoine because he sticks out in the crowd. And then he was just like, cool, I got you. I'm just going to introduce you to Rainey and Tiffany. And Tiffany, I believe, was at that conference. I don't know that Rainey was. And so Rainey Hamilton. And so he introduced me to Tiffany. And Tiffany introduced me to the rest of the Detroit crew, really. Like she was the connector for all things that made me feel very, very, very welcome, supported, and comfortable in Detroit. And it stuck out as a place that I felt like I belonged. And it was really interesting. Like I have no Michigan connections. I I found out I have a third cousin in Southfields or something, but I don't have like the roots that other people have. And I very quickly found out that people have this energy about Detroit and this attitude about Detroit that is just kind of like so deeply rooted in the belief in the progress of the city and the, the rich history of the city. It was so easy for me to become a Detroit cheerleader. And so I took a job with Gensler uh, originally and spent some time there, but most of my time was really just trying to get Gensler to dig deeper into the Detroit community, into the local, like Mm. Detroit proper community. Um, And so I did that with a few different uh, school projects and other types of kind of retail projects and things, anything I could get my hands on. But what was special about Detroit is just that, I mean, I was in my early to mid 20s and I could get projects. I could come into the office of mm-hmm. projects that were just these super large corporate, not all of them, but a lot of uh, larger corporate projects that typically you need like to be a roommate with someone who started Ford or something <laughs> like that, right? Or like you need to be kind of in a different arena in order to bring in the types of projects that um, some of the larger firms go for. I was able to just kind of maneuver and say, hey, I have a friend and everyone might say in Detroit, you know, someone who's building something, (laughs) people own Mm -hmm. things. It's easier to own things and easier to actually be able to affect your built environment. I won't say easier, but perhaps financially more accessible to some. And so it ended up just being this kind of beautiful mix of me needing a place like Detroit and Detroit kind of receiving me with open arms. And so that's my Detroit story. I, I was just looking for some deeper, stronger architectural design impact and trying to find my way. And Detroit kind of caught me somewhere along the way. And I, I still, though I'm sitting in Ithaca right now, 
have a very, very special place in my heart for Detroit and hope to get back as soon as possible. So, All right. And we said Detroit is like the biggest small town you will ever find, right? Uh, the city is large, but it, the connections are there. Everybody knows each other. Everybody, like you said, makes those connections. It's not like a fight uh, mm-hmm. over everything. So it's, it's, I really like to feel in Detroit too, like the connections and how people refer architects. I'm like, oh, I know an architect. I don't think no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. And in the short amount of time that you have been here, you've made a sizable impact. You know, you were on the board of AIA Detroit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what did it mean for you to to be on the board of professional organizations? You're also on the board of NOMA, uh, NOMA National. Uh, and you were on the board for NOMA Detroit as well. So why is that important to you to get involved with these professional organizations? That's a good question. I mean, I think for a long time, and again, the New York market in a lot of ways didn't really suggest to me that these things were nearly as important. So I wasn't I wasn't even really active in NOMA or AIA at all in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in Detroit, I will say my NOMA family was the original acceptance into Detroit, right? And so I didn't really understand the power of NOMA or AIA uh, until moving to Detroit. And so when I did move, I was more active in NOMA locally because that's just where my people are and where they were at the time. I thought it was just, um, I hadn't really gotten involved in Project Pipeline. I hadn't really had like the regular meetings with NOMA general body groups or chapters, right? So I was more so just interested in trying to root myself and find my family in Detroit. That in a lot of ways just happened perhaps naturally. I will say Kim Dell was like, go to the NOMA conference. Do not, <laughs> do not move from the NOMA group. And I was just like, you know, this is absolutely is right up my alley. It only makes sense for me to be here. AIA came a lot later in my time, um, partially because I did not understand the value of AIA at all. I wasn't licensed. I wasn't sure or clear on exactly how like the membership really worked. And so the more I was digging into my licensure and my positioning in sort of the Gensler world, I felt like it was important to have that presence on a board and to actually, I would say that AIA has some really amazing capacity and ability to maneuver the entire industry. And I was curious about their their grip and their hold on the industry and how much of an impact they actually are able to make. Yeah, um, they have completely yeah. different resources. They've got a different reach. And so, in order for us to be able to really sort of make progress in other arenas, meaning whether we are NOMA, whether we are any other sort of group, I think it's good to learn from AIA. They figured something out. They have a staff. They've got hundreds of thousands of members. Uh, Locally, they've got thousands of members. So I was just really curious about the connections between the two. And to be honest, there uh, was some overlap, but in a lot of ways, there are some disconnects that I was very curious about. And so um, one, the AI board that I joined was not the most diverse, but it had already made quite a bit of progress. Um, Like at some point, I think was very white and very male as some groups are. And they had made quite a few steps to make sure that at least women and other groups are represented. And so 
I was excited to join that group. It took me a while to even understand what all of the acronyms and things mean and just <laughs> get up to speed. But that's what I'm saying. Like there's yeah. a whole kind of learning curve with these other groups that I actually think has benefited my understanding and my approach to some leadership decisions in a really interesting way. So that's kind of why I thought those were more important. That's like both the both the things you've talked about so far, like with like I said, between uh, professional organizations, like I said, working at Starkitect firms, it's like that big stretch and disparity between those two different worlds. And for you to be in the Starkitect world in your early 20s, I would like for you to explain that too. Like, how did you just go straight into right. getting these? I mean, because most people would be like, well, how did you get those jobs? Right. I mean, like you're like, oh, yeah, I got the job, you know, it was like, <laughs> but really that that was a feat for your age and you starting out in the profession to start out with those type of opportunities mm-hmm. and then then make your choice to say, okay, no, I want to do things that impact my community. Can you tell us a little bit about how that, how you started out early in your career? Sure. Um, so I graduated a semester early from Cornell and I honestly believe that is a portion of the reason why I got the jobs that I got only because I was in a different timing of when people are looking for jobs. Um, but I graduated in December of 2011, and I can't say that there was a perfect strategy when I left school. It wasn't like, I love postmodernism, and that's what I'm going to go do (laughs) at Robert Stern. It was, um, where are my friends working? Where is my network working? Um, I usually say to anyone in search of a job that like cold emailing and cold calling is possible to get you the job, it's unlikely to get you the job. Um, And especially now that I can see how hiring works in all of these different firms, like it's very, very important. Wherever you went to school, there's probably some people who are working in firms that you would like to be working in or they're adjacent to them. And so use your network. Um, I absolutely use my network. One of the young ladies and a friend of mine had started working at Robert Stern before I had graduated. So I reached out to her really just to understand what her position was. And she and another older Cornellian that was maybe one of the principals there, uh, I just sent my materials to them just to say, like, here's my portfolio. Here's what's going on. And I got an interview. When I tell you, I used to send emails and cover letters and resumes and portfolios left and right when I was in school and never got a response because you're just kind of responding to a a big system, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's just a system that kind Mm -hmm. of filters through these applicants Um, and referrals matter more than people understand, I think. And so the referrals really helped. I got an interview relatively fast and everyone told me like, you never get the first job you you interview for and (laughs) oh, you shouldn't get your hopes up. And I, I interviewed and I nailed the interview and they hired me pretty um, pretty fast. So that cool. was cool. an interesting kind of, uh, I didn't really even make a ton of time to shop around. Uh, I had the job, I graduated in December. I took like a deep breath and then I was hired by February. And so that was one place that I also knew just of their work enough to know that I would get some pretty good foundational skills there. And so, I also did work in the career services at Cornell, so I knew a little bit more about like polishing the resume or polishing your portfolio before and reaching out to your network instead of just kind of cold calling. And so um, I used all of good. That's a good college job to have. It wasn't bad. I was (laughs) editing other people's resumes and I was looking at other people's portfolios and trying to help them kind of connect to the alumni network. And so 
I already had the connections. That's how I found Kim Dowdell, actually. Um, and so those things were pretty helpful to me. And then just moving from job to job, it was either a NOMA connection or a, another school connection. Moving from Robert Stern to uh, Dillard Scafidio was another colleague moving into Dillard Scafidio and just bringing a, a group of people that he trusted to work with um, to the next step. And so it's just about building really strong relationships and making sure that people uh, know your work and trust you enough to not embarrass them <laughs> at a firm. Um, and so I think those things have helped a lot. Gensler was actually just a Noma connection. It was Oz Ortega and uh, Kim making connecting some dots and making sure that the Detroit office knew that I was interested and that that actually, again, just Somehow I've had a relatively good time just moving from firm to firm, um, you know, buttoning up enough of a portfolio to get from one place to the other. And then just having good interview tactics, I think, was a really good, really good skill for me to have. Yeah, I think you 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 helped out just a ton of future interns right there with just with your, with your statements you just said. It's like, hey, I never I thought so. about working for career services. You know, write that down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, or at least go to them. They're underfunded. So please go. If you have one at your school, go to them. Lots of good resources yeah, there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and people don't use them like they should. So great advice. We always ask about mentors and role models. And you've mentioned a couple. Any more that you kind of want to mention that kind of helped you through that navigation to in school professional that uh, that you want to you know give a shout out to almost there are quite a few people who have shaped my career and have helped so much um, and I think of course like I've mentioned Kim Dowdell it has been a part of my career um, since I was a soft, uh, second year <laughs> I reached out to her uh, and she's just been kind of by my side, making sure uh, for everything. For She was a part of my Detroit move. She was one of the first people to edit a cover letter for me. Um, <laughs> even though I was in career services, I still could absolutely um, reach out to her and ask for just kind of like very basic and simple help. And she would spend the time helping me. And so that has helped me a lot. I would say now I kind of have a set of mentors that are education-based, like they are uh, academic instructors that may, made a bit of an impact on me and or now like as a firm leader, I think um, in a lot of ways, role models like Sandra, you're, you're a role model in a lot of ways just because it's very hard, I think, for people to understand that independent practice is possible and that teaching is possible. I don't think a lot of people understand how much of an impact one Black professor can make, um, where like Milton Curry, who started ARC Prep with University of Michigan, which uh, coincidentally was uh, beginning right when I moved to Detroit as well. He also worked with people who I did thesis with, Sula Thierry and Michael Jefferson, um, who I'm now at Cornell with, again, kind of closing the loop. But Milton Curry, uh, I spent a summer with him in Brazil with Jim Williamson, and that summer changed my life. That was a traveling studio that they had put wow. together um, and spending time with Milton and seeing his approach to his own research and his own kind of academic career made an impact on me, whether I was in the moment looking for a reason to be an instructor or not. When I came to Detroit, Milton was also starting art prep. And 
I have to say, though I was never a fellow, I interacted with Art Krebs, but the fact that he prioritized making the program, I think gave me quite a bit of hope and then also made an example of why showing up in university settings and actually being the coach and being the person that drives um, a young architect's career, especially as a black person, which right now I'm, I'm the only black person I can see in the Cornell architecture faculty. There are people probably abroad or maybe not on campus right now, but in my path, I've been the anomaly and I'm sure many others have been the anomaly, but it's been an, an enormous and unpredictable part of my career where I can be a part of somebody's academic career and to, to drive a portion of that. And so, and to make sure that the education that we are sharing with the next generation of designers and leaders is rooted in the true histories of Black communities, of yeah. marginalized issues. Like there are issues that I never learned in school, no matter what the course offering was like there were now I can see quite a few more course offerings that are at least rooted in equity or marginalized communities or something like this but is it deeply integrated into your studio project can you actually loop all of these pieces of information into a history course a theory course a studio course so that people generally just understand the importance of our role as architects in the built environment and whether we are complicit in the blatant racism <laughs> built into our urban history and perhaps our future. We don't like, we have an opportunity to actually shift out of some of these really sort of elitist complicit roles. And so I think that to me, the, the role models use their positions to make big changes um, both in their, either their department their firm. I had a number of Gensler mentors that really helped me kind of shape my understanding of how to exist and make different changes in waves in a larger global firm. So I think that also has really led me to feel like I could have run my own studio where, I mean, Gensler is by far, I'd say like they're the largest design firm. They have a good on how to run a business. They are a business probably first. And then of course, really beautiful design work otherwise. But I really learned the kind of ins and outs of some of the operations and the management aspects of things like the administrative portion of things um, and designing as well. Like I'd say most of my work as an architect now is probably influenced by the fact that Gensler does so much interior work. Mm -hmm. um, and in Detroit, interior work is really, really important because it is about infilling quite a few either vacant properties or underutilized spaces, um, allowing for people. There are not very many people who can just buy full buildings. Um, and so it allows for people, particularly Black people, to buy a space and see their kind of interior build out in, the, in a few months, let's say, or maybe the better part of a year. And so my whole perspective on things in New York, I thought interior design was like a completely different department that had nothing to do with me. Wow. <laughs> I was only wow. architecture. Um, and now I feel very much so like an interior architect when the majority of my work is interior architecture. Um, and so my role models and my, let's say mentors all supported me through this kind of like multifaceted approach to my career where I know that teaching is important. 
to me because I want to be able to instill most of what I'm kind of currently learning as a des- mm-hmm. as an adult black designer uh, in my position in the world. I want to instill that earlier. I want people to be graduating with the tools to be helpful as opposed to me kind of like wandering in my career for a little while and then figuring out when and where to make more intentional impact. So yeah, I mean, it's it's turned into I can't name everybody, but I would say that there's so much about every experience that was so different. I think one person that I do really like to say, or maybe two people, um, are Liz Diller and Rick Scafidio. They, when I arrived there, I absolutely was intimidated and was not sure that I belonged there. And I questioned multiple times daily uh, why I was there. I'm a talented designer for sure, but I think in any competitive environment, especially there where everything's experimental and everything feels so cutting edge that there's competition and it's uncomfortable sometimes, especially for a young black designer who doesn't really see herself well represented. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was quiet there. I was really, really quiet and I was really, really timid. And they both in their own way pulled me aside to make sure that I understood that my value was my voice and that Mm -hmm. I was, I needed to speak up because they couldn't really figure out, like, I don't need to sit in a meeting if I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) Um, And they kind of taught me how to be a little bit more confident in expressing ideas and sort of exchanging uh, design ideas where I think, I'm pretty sure Liz, Diller said something along the lines of like 95% of her ideas, which like imagine (laughs) their ideas are some of the best in the industry. She said 95% of her ideas are just going to be thrown out. They're not even that good or that special, but she has to say 100% of her ideas because 5% changes the industry. It changes Mm -hmm. the world and the built environment. And so being able to kind of like really iterate and talk through your ideas, sketch through your ideas has been exponentially more helpful than sitting quietly in a meeting room because I'm just too busy thinking about whether I'm keeping up with everybody else. And so they really, really helped shape how vocal I became. Like I wouldn't be writing any articles. I wouldn't be speaking anywhere because I would have been so, so freaked out by (laughs) any volume coming out of me. And that like, it almost just flipped a switch and I was like, okay, great. I got it. Like I hear you loud and clear. And it changed my entire career. It actually, in a way, was part of the reason why I left was because I was like, well, my ideas are probably my 5% of my ideas that could be really helpful need to go to the groups that need it a little bit more. (laughs) We're working on stuff for here, but kudos to them. Kudos to that work. That training was invaluable to me as well. So really great mentorship and words of wisdom from them. You have had a remarkable career experience. I mean, you have had like you said, the the even the tentacles of everything that you've touched, I mean, from education in that space and understanding research and importance of that, the mentoring that you got from the educational side, from the professional side, a lot of people have not been as fortunate to get that. You had a cradling experience, like literally that that made you into who you are. I mean, you first when you were saying like, I was quiet, I was like, what? You know, my head turns to the side, like, Amani quiet? I was like, what? Yeah, nobody knows me as that person. And now I can't stop talking. But but she saw that in you. She she knew, she saw your talent and she saw what you could do and she pulled it out of you. Yeah. So that was, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's an excellent uh, mentoring uh, tidbit to share. Just really, really great. 
in a lot of other situations, you know, they would just say, you know, she doesn't have anything to say, really yeah. nothing to contribute. She's a great designer, but, you know, what what is she thinking about? Mm-hmm. You know, and you may not have lasted too long there. So. I doubt that I would have. Honestly, I think they could have easily just kind of like put me either in a very quiet, simple position where I wouldn't have had any real kind of upward mobility or I mean, people can just kind of write you off as a quiet person, Mm -hmm. but I think the special aspect of that is exactly what you said is is that they took the time to actually just say like, hey, what's up? Because we know you're valuable, but we want to make sure that you understand how you show up to us. Because I was just like, if I do talk, I was so anxious to talk. I was so anxious to do anything. So um, I think it's just a special time and an understanding of like our I think school sometimes like college level architecture has a way of um, almost punching, punching you in the gut. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. You've got to have really tough skin. And I, yes. I imagine, and I remember quite a few people coming out of my class that would like show their work very timidly. It'd be like, this is not good, but let me tell you what I'm doing or something like that. And it would be really, really tough to gain your confidence back because in our time, like, it was okay to be pretty harsh and pretty aggressive in your criticism. And you couldn't, there was just a really different understanding of yourself as a designer. And so I think to regain that confidence meant everything to me and really kind of changed the entire trajectory of where I am today. So very grateful for that. That's great. Amazing. So I want to back up again too, though. So (laughs) we, we, we never talked about what made you want to go into architecture in general? Like, why did you pick this field? as a profession for you? So I have a, a dumb story for this. This is not a helpful story, but it, um, I originally thought that I would be a, so my dad, let me back up myself. My dad is a visual artist and he taught me how to draw. He taught me a lot of sort of graphic sensibilities and just, you know, craft and those sorts of things. So generally uh, I grew up around artwork and I grew up around creative people and creativity as a trade. Um, And so I saw it and I was impacted by, but I I always kind of thought I might go into like a social science or something like that. I, I really wanted to be a psychologist at some point in time. And I continued to kind of draw spaces. Like I would draw, everybody kind of redraws their room over and over again, or I would be drawing and sketching quite a bit. Um, And I always kind of wondered, like, "Hmm, this is odd. It's not going to be part of my life. And I never really saw it as a part of my kind of like professional life until I was in this program at Princeton um, called the W.E.B. Du Bois, I think, leadership program or something along those lines. And we all had to say what we wanted to do. And before in the group, they were sitting in a circle before they got to me. Another young man said that he wanted to be an architect. And I was like, much better than what I have to say. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a psychologist as much anymore. And then I actually just thought about more kind of um, mashups of architecture and psychology. But what I will say is that, I mean, it makes more sense than what I wanted to do. I think this is all really still about exposure and the fact that like for a long time, I mean, though I could see maybe houses and things being built around me or we knew maybe one or two architects in our life, maybe nobody really told me that was an option as a profession. I never really thought about it as an option 
I always thought like, maybe I'll be an artist or maybe I'll do graphic design or something like that. But for the most part, the dots were not connecting for me naturally. So this other young man said he wanted to be an architect. Funny enough, he's not an architect now and I am, but he kind of sparked that in me. And it makes sense because it is a very technical visual art to me. My mom's a pretty technical like editor, writer, teacher, person. And to combine, I think what I could see in my grandparents, my parents, into a human being's, you know, kind of career, I think was really special and important to me. But it's amazing to me, had I not been in that discussion, I don't know what I would be doing today. I don't know that I would have gone into architecture because shortly after, then that really is what started me taking any classes or going to summer colleges for architecture anyway. So you said you went to, you were at a program at Princeton. What year was this? This was 2005. Were you in, you were in high school or? Yes, I was in okay. high school. Wow. And I'm from New Jersey, so it's, it wasn't that far of, right. a, of a concept for me and my friends were going as well. So I was just kind of like, yeah, we should definitely do this. Um, and it sculpted quite a few other types of leaders, like people, I think, go into all different sorts of really cool professions after the fact. But yeah, that's where it all started. And it kind of sparked what happened, like, you know, in architecture, you have to know pretty early if you're going to do it, which mm-hmm. is a whole separate issue. But you're going to, if you know, and you go into it, I think that was where I really figured out how early I had to do things and had to make decisions. And so had I not been in that conversation again, no clue. <laughs> I don't know. I probably would have been at Spelman doing psychology. That's what I thought I was going to do prior to that conversation. Wow. I mean, a lot of people say that, though, it's just it was this one talk. It was this one thing mm-hmm. that made them realize that was a career option because we don't run into architects in our everyday walk of life. I know I I ran into one and didn't know it uh, when I was younger, right. so I'm just now finding out about it. But, yeah, it's just like it's it's not something we're like, oh, yeah, my mom's friend is an architect. So he was talking to me right. about it and I thought that was a good idea. So it is a conversation, a spark that kind of took all of that you had in your head, your head, you know, seeing the visual arts and then like, boom, I can do this as a career. And it, it, it happens like that for a lot of people we've been talking to. Mm-hmm. It's really, it really kind of, you know, interesting how that, how that goes. So yeah, it's not, it's not stupid at all, but I mean, you, you have, it's like so many things that you just mentioned casually, like <laughs> Karen was talking about you, you went, to, you know, you went to this program at Princeton. It was like, that's like, <laughs> He's like, oh, it's not far. I was like, man, that's amazing. I'm over here like, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I will say, let me let me just preface that with, I understand, I feel very fortunate and I, I don't mean to say those things casually. I mean, to me, it's like decades ago and who cares? But yeah, in the context of really understanding what that meant to me in my career, like it's been so pivotal. Some of these really, what I might consider in my like long history of knowing all of my life, like seem so small sometimes, but they're so drastically, yeah. like, they change sure. your, their whole, um, your trajectory. whole trajectory. But I think yeah. in those ways, I have felt extremely fortunate. Every step has been um, not easy for sure. That's also, I mean, in the same Princeton program, that's where I learned pull all-nighters that's where I learned to work like my work ethic was actually kind of shaped by that program too because prior to that I mean I was a good student before but I had no idea the work that people put into some of these things and so I feel privileged I feel pretty fortunate but now I put I think now because I know that there are people whose parent whose dad or their mom 
or their mom's mom or their mom's dad, or there's like these generations of architects in a family and generations of successful architects in a family um, that shape some of the students that I teach today, where they show up knowing things that has taken me years after yeah. school to learn some of the things that they show up knowing um, in high school. And so I think it puts things in perspective for me just because there's a lot of really good things that I and my parents were able to have me do. But still, somehow I showed up and I was like behind other people. And like, you know, like I thought, you know, you think you are well prepared and you're trying to prepare and prepare and prepare and somehow still a few steps behind. And I think it's definitely the exposure, but it's like the exposure plus the ability to train and kind of actually wrap your mind around it much earlier in your life. So, though, I feel like I was pretty early not as early as I could have been. But. Right, right. It's almost like you said, it's, it's back to the systemic thing, right? It's things that we don't realize that we're not exposed to and right. have access to that we discover as we, you know, like I say, as we come across a pathway and we're like, oh, they're already here doing this and I'm just now showing up at the table, right? So mm-hmm. it is, it's, it's very true with us coming into architecture. I mean, I experienced some of that in school. I'm like, how do they already know that, right? And I mm-hmm. And I don't know that, right? And then the fact that you you went through these things and they are a part of your life because you're like, I'm still friends with that person to know that he didn't become an architect. Right. Um, <laughs> and it's like it's like you still have these attachments to it. And I hate to say it. I, I hate to uh, sound like I'm ageism, but it's because you're 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 younger. It's like those things become more vivid to you the further you get in mm-hmm. your career. And you're like wait a minute. Yeah. It's like, now I realize how pivotal that was. And before it was like, I tell my son all the time now, it's like, sometimes he's like, you're making me go to this class or you're making me, you know, do this thing. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. you have to do it. You just like, and later he's going to be like, well, God, I'm glad she made me right. go do this yeah. thing. I'm going to go to that class because. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you don't know until, until you have those subsequent experiences, you mm-hmm. don't understand how your life has been shaped by certain things. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. And I can see it in some of the younger designers that I know, or the students that I teach, where I think there's a question of like, what's necessary, or like what parts of what you're teaching or trying to work with them on are being like deeply rooted or instilled in who they are as designers and things. And I think sometimes as a professor, like the assignments feel like busy work or something, but it's like, you have no idea how beneficial some of this stuff can be. You also have no idea how beneficial just some conversations with people are going to be. A lecture can be because I had no idea, especially when I was on campus, just you're tired and you're, trying to figure so many things out at once like maybe you miss most of lectures or maybe you uh you know like you sleep through a history class or something like that and you just don't know what those things actually could mean to you if you just invest a little bit more time hey there architecture enthusiast nikita reed here inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast tangible remnants historic preservation and sustainability Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely 
extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. As you all know, we have our regular Detroit City of Design spotlight in each episode. And today we are focusing on Detroit's small businesses. Yeah, we're going to start off with the Detroit Lip Bar. Um, This is a small business that is located in a very popular area of Detroit. It is in downtown Detroit, and it is also designed by our guest today, Amani Day. It is located in the Shinola Park Alley, which is an alley behind um, this very creative adaptive reuse project. But this alley is named after a great entrepreneur that started way before this shopping district started. So it dates back to Mr. Thomas Parker. Uh, He was the first free man to own land in the city of Detroit. And then that is just great how the connection of this lip bar, Detroit lip bar, um, is in this alley that is based off of um, Black businesses and entrepreneurship. So the Detroit Lip Bar is Black-owned, woman-owned business Mm -hmm. that has been featured on a number of different things. Our Detroit Visitors Bureau, um, they have all vegan and cruelty-free makeup. Their lips, glosses, and lip balms have a definitely a great following here throughout the nation because you can order online as well, but they have a brick-and-mortar location right in this area we're talking about. So I use their products. Uh, I've had the uh, pleasure of meeting Melissa Butler, the owner. And around the time that I met her, this was a few years ago, it was about the time that her products were starting to be displayed and sold at Target stores. So she's at Target. I believe she's in some other retail locations as well, as well as online. And she started in her kitchen, started making makeup products in her kitchen. So, a uh, fantastic story. Entrepreneurship here is just amazing. I right, right. You can't beat this Detroit entrepreneurial spirit. Um, the next small business that we're going to talk about a little bit is Design Studio 6, which is owned by April McGee Flournoy and her husband. April is the daughter of famous artist, sculptor, uh, muralist, Charles McGee. Charles McGee was a fixture here in the city of Detroit for years and years. His work is at the Detroit Institute of Arts, the Charles Wright Museum. Uh, You can see his murals all over the city. And he was working and painting and sculpting well into his later years. He just passed away a couple years ago. Um, We are blessed to be able to see his work all around the city. 
and Design Studio 6 is one of his former studio locations on West McNichols in Detroit, a place that we have featured before. And April and her husband have remodeled this studio, turned it into a gallery and a retail location. April is an interior designer, so her studio is in the back of the location. And um, we just recently, uh, we, meaning Space Lab and the city of Detroit, had several muralists from across the city showcase their work there, some other artwork there. Uh, And it was a great event. Uh, And it was fantastic just to continue that legacy of mural art and artwork in the studio of Charles McGee. Another business that we're going to talk about as well is Chili Mustard Onions. Also, everybody knows that Detroit is known for their Coney hot dogs. You've heard, I know, about Lafayette Coney Island and American Coney Island. And the battle between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Chili Mustard Onions is designed by African-American architect Kenneth Crutcher uh, here in Detroit. And this coney is actually a vegan coney. So they have burgers and coney dogs and well, fries. That's already vegan. But, you know, <laughs> they have uh, developed quite a following from this vegan restaurant with our Coney Island theme. Mm-hmm. Another one uh, is Ivy Kitchen. Uh, so Ivy Kitchen is on Jefferson Avenue, um, actually right by where the mayor's mansion is, uh, just past Balao in kind of the east uh, English village side of Detroit. They are a very uh, sought after go-to spot that has great happy hour specials. And it is also a black owned business, uh, woman owned business. Um, and that project was actually designed by myself uh, when I had my home firm a couple of years ago. And it's just great to see the success of this restaurant post-COVID. And it's really bustling. Featured in Essence Magazine last month as one of the 10 um, Black restaurants to visit while in Detroit. Yeah, Naya Marshall, the owner there, is a hard worker. You see her in the restaurant working. She's always working on some new entrepreneurial venture, but it's great to visit the restaurant. Uh, She's always very welcoming. When Noir Design Party had our gathering just a few uh, months ago, we had it there at Ivy Kitchen and Cocktails and great food, great drinks. Yes. Another restaurant that we want to talk about is Baobab Fair. Um, They are on Woodward and... East Grand Boulevard, so at the corner of Woodward and Grand Boulevard. The restaurant was designed by Dokes Design Architecture. Uh, We're going to hear from Kim Dokes, but Damon Dickerson, who is also a partner there at Dokes Design, uh, worked on that project as well. Uh, Wonderful East African food. Oh, just so delicious. And the interior of the, the restaurant just makes you feel something special while you're there eating, uh, or even if you just get takeout. The owner of Baobab Fair uh, is an immigrant here in the United States. I believe he was an engineer before he came here, Uh, had not planned on opening a restaurant, but now that restaurant is a James Beard Award finalist. Uh, The food is fantastic. 
So gaining national and international acclaim uh, right here in the city of Detroit. We're giving you all our go-to spots. You come yeah. to Detroit, these are the places <laughs> right, you need to go right. to. <laughs> so along that stretch, uh, along Woodward, uh, between Milwaukee and Grand Boulevard, there are lots of great restaurants there. Uh, Yum Village, we got to give a shout out to Godwin and his Afro-Caribbean food styling. Kitchen by Q, um, Joe Louis Southern Kitchen, which is owned by the same people that did New Center Eatery with the great chicken and waffles. Um, so that stretch of, of Woodward is just bustling with great food places now. And a lot of these restaurants uh, that we've mentioned and small business that businesses that we've mentioned uh, have benefited from Motor City Match. Uh, Motor City Match is a program that the city of Detroit has to support and bring in new businesses to the city and to help existing businesses expand um, by providing funding and business planning services and technical services to small businesses who want to build and grow. And Space Lab Detroit, one of my businesses, was um, one of the businesses that benefited from that. We are excited to say that we were a Motor City Match winner a couple times, and we worked with Centric Design Studio, Sandra's former firm, uh, with the design of our space, you know, thanks to Motor City Match. Hey, I mean, that, that program has been amazing. When, you, when Karen was talking about technical services, I mean, it's really been a great match for people to understand how to find an architect, mm -hmm. because those technical services, they pay the fees and that soft cost that is hard for small business owners to get that access to. And they go out and pre-qualify the firms. And then all that business coming in has to do is set up a series of like three to four firms they want to talk to, uh, get pricing from them, who you better have, you know, who you have the best chemistry with. And it helps them not to go out and have to search out and vet out all these businesses. These are uh, viable architecture and design companies that the city is already vetted for each of these small businesses. It's a great program. It's a wonderful program. And uh, it's been in existence since about 2015. So about seven years now. And it's actually what have been other cities that have come here. Right. And, and learned about that program and trying to, to replicate it in other, ci other cities right. across the country. Right. So it is amazing. So actually, I am actually working on a Motor City Match project now at my new firm, Quinn Evans. Uh, and we're working with Paradise Natural Foods. So that is going to be off the beaten path a little bit. It's actually a new area that's bustling right in the Woodbridge and Core City area on Grand River. Our restaurant will be in the Allied Media Projects headquarter building. Can't wait. And, uh, can't wait to see that. Can't wait for that for the <laughs> open. So it's going to be cool design, natural flair as well. Uh, uh, Mama Neza, who owns that. Um, is actually uh, very, you know, from the islands as well. And all of the food is farm to table focused. So uh, it'll be a great spot for lunch where you can come pick up some pre-made foods. And she still uh, does catering. So people will be able to get the full menu, but it'll be uh, great to see uh, that open up real soon. Like I said, this program is just still doing great work. Yeah. So if you are interested in starting a business with the city of Detroit, or in the city of Detroit, check out Motor City Match, MotorCityMatch.com online. And I believe they're in round 22 right now. 
So probably the end of December, a new round will open up and you can apply. Yeah, we could talk about businesses all day. There's so many areas, um, like Karen mentioned Woodward Avenue, but we also have the Live 6 area Mm -hmm. that has a number of different uh, businesses that are springing up along there, Detroit Pizza Bar and the new brewer, black-owned brewery that's brewery opening. Is coming, is coming. Yeah. Um, so, so many things that are in the works. Yeah. Yeah. Just, and then, then we have stable areas that are already bustling with uh, a number of small businesses and black businesses along the uh, avenue of fashion. Yeah, Livernois. Yeah, Livernois Avenue of Fashion. Always crowded. Always a, a great place to go visit. So, come check out Detroit. If you haven't been here in a while, you might not recognize it something new every day we can't even keep up with all the restaurants that we want to go to and businesses and businesses that's right i got food on the food on the brain now i think i might be getting a little little hungry (laughs) so uh yeah check out all these beautifully designed businesses and especially the ones that are designed by black architects you'll have the information in the show notes And check out the show notes for every episode because we've been putting things in there from not only our guests, uh, but also the information from our Detroit City of Design Spotlight. Now back to Imani Day. It's very interesting, too, with your parents. Uh, You've gotten the creative side from your dad and your mom's, you know, like you said, the technical writer. And I see that in you now, right? Like all of these things that are being fed. So, so can you tell us a little bit about your 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 writing that you've done and you've done op-eds? And I always ask you about it because I'm like, man, that's cool. I've never done one of those. Well, I mean, you, I, I think everybody has an opinion. And to be honest, the way that I fell into writing, I do enjoy writing. My mom trained us like Jedi's to be able to write and speak and do all of the grammatical things and all of her um, linguistics and things. And she is a fanatic about those things. But what I will say is a lot of what my career was prior to starting to write more or to publish more was pretty design heavy and pretty like, I didn't know, or I guess I didn't, it didn't really occur to me either that you could be writing. And so Wanda Lau, she was with Architect Magazine and now I, I think has moved on to a separate publication, but she reached out to me to see if I had anything to write about. And I was like, I don't know, but I'm sure I could come up with something pretty interesting. Um, so I started writing for her uh, or with her, let's say, as my editor. Um, and then the relationship continues. So usually you write something um, if it does well enough or if it's good, well enough written, um, then you probably get asked to write about other things. And so she was an interesting kind of different pivotal moment for me just because I really enjoyed writing. It's a painful process, I think, for many, but it is something that I enjoy quite a bit and I always want to be doing. So even now, my uh, revision is, is always going to be design practice and research and publishing. Like it's always going to be some some academic related or research related activity with us. And so that's how that started. But what I will say, another person who probably even before Wanda was Mitch McEwen, who was in Detroit Mm -hmm. and perhaps still does some stuff in Detroit, was another person who just encouraged me and put me in the right 
conversations. And so I, I would guess that she was one of the people who connected me to Architect Magazine. She then also connected me to like other editorial fellowships on writing that I was, I had no intention of using ever again. Like some of these, some of these things end up being like a paper you wrote in fourth year can get you somewhere in the world of writing again and editorial writing versus opinion writing. And so I found those experiences to be yet another just facet to my career where I never really wanted to be like a straightforward practicing architect where it's just like, you know, rinsing and repeating and drawing and only kind of being behind the computer. That allowed me to have to take a stance on some social issues that I felt really passionate about. It also allowed me to start thinking much deeper about the types of research that I needed to be doing and how to equip myself with more information so that I could actually have a, uh, an informed stance on some issues, especially you know, representation in the industry, but going beyond representation into a whole world of other deeply rooted issues that then result in the lack of representation. Um, and so I think that was a really special time. And again, a lot of this is not always a strategy or something that you're hunting for. And actually people ask me about the, the writing thing quite a bit. But one aspect of that is definitely people reaching out to me and then you being vocal enough, meaning like I had to be loud enough in some room for Mitch to know that I could contribute to any sort of opinion column. Then uh, it rolls into other ways that she was kind of quarterbacking some of the writing. Sometimes it's just about asking the publication whether you can write for them. And I learned that from the Gensler Public Relations Group, where um, so much of the way that firms show up in their PR stance is a strategy. It's a it's a marketing team. It's a public relations team mm -hmm. um, that just kind of puts feelers out and creates these relationships with editors who they trust. Um, and so I think it's important to know that, that it's not just like, oh, you have to be really visible and cool. And then somebody finds you. It's like, you can also be pretty strategic if you're a strong writer and you feel passionately about things. I'll also say the the editorial writing that I did was through the um, Avery Review with Columbia and their team of editors are always, always, always write, uh, looking for strong writers and strong um, topics to cover. In that way, I think there's a duality to this where I think some people just find you because they want to hear your opinion. But if you are talking loud enough or if you're writing well enough, then I think you can get into quite a few different rooms that'll push your voice a lot further. And I think that that's something people don't teach you. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is, I think mm -hmm. people don't teach you how to teach, especially at a college <laughs> right. level. People don't teach right. you necessarily right. because you're an architect how to write. Um, and so I kind of have my like kind of like training from birth from Nora Day, who, <laughs> who has trained us. But I think it's an interesting new skill that you build as well um, and a new rhythm because on projects, you're doing something that is kind of like, you know, the phases are typical for the most part. You're kind of wiggling in and out of those. But teaching has its own kind of politics. It's got its own academic sort of like approach to things, the sequencing of uh, how people teach and how you uh, respond to people and sort of give your criticism is also a, a skill that you build. Um, and this writing aspect is a skill. There's so many aspects of like the different facets of at least my career that I've had to build the skill first. Um, and so that's been interesting to me and I, I, I get bored pretty easily. So that's probably half of it where I'm just like, this has been cool, but what else can we do with the career and the training and the background that you have? Right. So, 
Right. Yeah. So tell us a bit about your fellowship now, what you're doing at Cornell. The fellowship is called the Design Teaching Fellowship. And it came at a time where I had started uh, revision and I had taught. So I'd spent some time teaching at University of Detroit Mercy, actually for FAMU for a little okay. while, virtually in the pandemic, which mm-hmm. I wasn't in Tallahassee, but I, <laughs> um, I interacted with quite a few students who I still really enjoy. Um, and so I kind of just took a moment. I think I was I was trying to ramp up with revision and I thought like, hmm, maybe I won't teach for a moment. And it occurred to me, like I just mentioned, nobody teaches you how to teach. And I started looking into some, um, really, let's, let's rewind. I wasn't looking for a fellowship as much as I was, um, I think, connected to academia enough um, for this fellowship to at least come, not directly and easily to me, but it kind of became an opportunity for me to look deeper into. And so it was almost kind of framed as something that could help mentor new teachers into Mm -hmm. learning how to teach and actually how to kind of like really shape a design curriculum, how to, in your desk crits, like how do you actually give constructive, helpful feedback um, as opposed to perhaps like if there's no craft to it, if there's no skill, then anyone could show up and give that desk credit. And that's not really the case. And I'm, I'm loving so much of this fellowship because it's teaching me so much of who I am as an instructor or as a professor who really in your academic career, anybody's academic career should be a trusted advisor and a coach. I, I really do right. feel this is almost like me coaching a sports team or something like that and really trying to build up skills Um, and like mental muscles, design muscles for them. And I feel like this fellowship has given me the opportunity. I'm teaching first year um, and I'm really excited about it. It's one other professor here. He always says like, we are the most important people in the faculty or you have the most important job in the university because you're kind of sculpting how that class will move forward as a design group, what they learn, how how much progress they make and how much they can grow in their first year really does dictate a lot of how much they can accomplish, you know, across the board and a lot of other years in their, in their time. And so it's been really special, um, but really most of why the fellowship was more appealing to me is because it came with uh, research support um, and the ability to teach a seminar, which I'm involved in a seminar right now that is a Detroit, it's a Mellon Design Justice uh, seminar that took me to Detroit mm-hmm. recently. And that was focused on community engagement and uh, really these sort of like the the art and skill of actually engaging with communities and the different modes through, you know, uh, art or through, you know, just kind of community engagement consultants through urban planning, through all of these different ways that we actually can engage with communities, which is really eye opening for me just because crafting a trip also allows you to Uh, give your own kind of perspective on who in Detroit is doing really exciting work and just really allows you to zoom out because Detroit is a really good uh, sort of area for studying something like this. My seminar and my research is really focused on digging a little deeper into the mechanisms of equity. And so trying to understand 
really all of the successful uh, ways and strategies around the world. I think a lot of times you see firms, particularly uh, nonprofit firms or uh, firms that are focused on community, they're often in Africa or they're in like India or something like that, where mm-hmm. we're so much of what I've seen and what I've done in Detroit is not always very different. Like the economies are not very different. The impact that can be made is not always very different. And so I think that a lot of designers could benefit from a more structured view of the options that we have. So can we create new economies with architecture? Can we actually be a little bit more guerrilla about how we approach communities with open lots and things uh, and how we program those lots, how we actually make new ways for income in the community. Uh, Obviously, affordable housing and the development approach that we take is really important. But what I'm finding is that clients will come to me and ask me questions about some really great project or topic or something in their neighborhood. And they have a a bit of a learning curve on how to make those things happen, too. Um, And I don't want to be I though what we know of so many different ways, you know, the tax incentives and all of these other ways that we can go about approaching some projects, I don't know that I've ever seen it taught in this way or uh, the research, the depth of the research being funded and supported and then allowing students to be a part of that research, um, interviewing people, interviewing like economists and clients Mm. and Mm. uh, community members and actually understanding what the needs are and how uh, how to create these like longer term equity Uh, mechanisms that create the generational wealth or that start to close the racial wealth gap, those sorts of things as a mode of architecture or as a mode of design and urban um, design, how do we teach that? Mm -hmm. And how do students show up in the conversation where they can start to craft their own understanding of it as well, I think is really important. And so that has been what the fellowship is about. It's about both learning how to engage and actually connect with students in the most effective ways Um, and to help drive the design process so that they learn their own path. But then really speaking loudly about these topics in universities that are not typically tackling uh, these issues um, and allowing for that to be my focus, I think has been really special while I'm practicing. Um, So yeah, that's, that's what this fellowship is about and why it's so special to me. Wow. I mean, to bring the the whole finance piece into architecture is something I felt like I didn't have in architecture school, right? It's like learning how projects can actually happen versus learning just like, oh, we just designing, you know, designing mm-hmm. that project mm-hmm. instead of trying to, you know, like I said, grow that and make that happen. It's like, I look at like why my parents came to Detroit and why they moved from the South to the North. It was like to get jobs, to get money, you know, mm-hmm. to get a, a better mm-hmm. opportunity, to, you know, to, to come to the automotive industry, to work there. But learning how to make an economy move mm-hmm. uh, is something I I learned along the way, but I definitely did not learn that in architecture school. So I appreciate that part of this program. And then I see your flexibility you have now, and you went from the structure of a firm to a structure of being a firm owner, which gave you that flexibility. That's the one thing that you get uh, when you're an entrepreneur and when you're you're a firm owner, you get to say what I'm going to do that day at work, right? And you're now feeding your practice now from all these different vantage points because, like, right. it's giving you that experimental piece that you 
one in your practice and you're learning these different aspects. I just can't wait to see what you do when you go back and start to. How is <laughs> so, she going to implement right, all right. those ideas gonna, yeah, and things gonna implement she's, the, she's the, doing? The, the, right. the live action, what we say, history lesson you're getting right now, right? That you're, you're uh, it, it, you know, it, it's, I'm, I'm just excited to see your future, Imani. Really, I am. <laughs> so if, if you could just tell us a little bit too about your practice, right? And your, and your work that you're doing. I say, I had to get that compliment in there to tell you, you're just amazing. And let me back up. I'm sorry, Imani. Let me back up, though. No. Because when you started your practice, mm-hmm. you were still working at Gensler. Mm-hmm. You know, your first project mm-hmm. start was the lip bar, mm-hmm. and you were still at Gensler, but you had your own firm. And Sandra and I have discussed this a couple times, you know, when we, or when I was working for an architecture firm, that was frowned upon. They they didn't want people moonlighting. People did. Just don't talk about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so that's an, another interesting thing that I have to say I'm grateful for as well. So the Lib Bar came to me in probably 2018, later in the year in 2018. And it's a teeny tiny, it's, a, it's just a room. And Melissa Butler, the client, absolutely drove the, we don't want to work with anyone but you. Um, Mm -hmm. So we're not working with large firms. We're not working with really white firms. And so can you do this? This is such a small, it was a small square footage. And I thought to myself like, yeah, this would not necessarily be appropriate for Gensler to do because the projects and the scale of the, some of their projects is so big. Um, And to be honest, it just needed to line up between what she wanted out of the, what Melissa wanted out of the project and what I could actually achieve at the time. And so I had a really healthy and open conversation with my office director about it. Um, I just was like, hey, I want to do this project. It was more so like, I'm going to do this project. And like, I hope <laughs> that's okay. Um, and at the time, I actually had another colleague who was moonlighting as well. And so, but some most of the time, like Gensler doesn't do single family housing. It's unlikely that they're mm-hmm. touching a single family house. Or in this case, like the scale of this, I think was agreed upon that like, yeah, it might not be um, easy for them to approach this project and for it to be profitable and like, you know, work with the project, uh, the office kind of like operations. And so they let me do it on the side and I had never done a project on my own before. Um, and so some of it was their her belief in me, my real interest in being able to do a project like that. Um, I think it was like, I'm not passing up the opportunity to work with a Black woman who is running a cosmetic and makeup company, a skincare company that was all about inclusion, where she was focused on the fact that the beauty industry just didn't have enough of an inclusive approach to helping everybody feel beautiful and a part of the, uh, of the products. And so it was a really special time for me. And what I will say is it was absolutely the foundation for what the firm is today. Um, so I was still at Gensler and I was teaching, I was teaching at Gensler. I was (laughs) practicing, uh, and working on Gensler projects as well. And so the unique aspect of this is that, um, the pandemic in a lot of ways kind of sent me into this sort of independent mindset because I was just sitting by myself anyway and projects had continued to fall into my lap which I will say though again 
no uh, part of me believes I'm not a talented designer first, but um, the market is thirsty for Black female architects, for Black architects, uh, the, the Detroit market specifically, and other, you know, majority Black cities, I think are very, very interested in finding ways to keep the money within the community and to work with Black architects who can understand what the needs really are, what the, you know, the mission of some companies even are, uh, the neighborhoods that they're trying to affect. And so that's how the, the company started. I was moonlighting and grinding, like I was doing probably too many things at once, <laughs> which is typical in my life. But I, um, that's how I got a little taste of what it was to be an independent architect. And then I stayed at Gensler for a little while longer. And so I spent quite a bit of time thinking through the approach to starting a company. But what I noticed was just that there are not very many options in this market for if you would like to work with a Black architect or a Black female architect. Um, and so that helped drive, like, we don't really market ourselves. We don't really have to right now because there's just plenty of work kind of coming to us with both the kind of like smaller Detroit community and the networking that we've done. Um, and so we're growing into what is now, a, I mean, we've got plenty of projects and really exciting projects. And one really, really exciting product that we came out of the gate with was this neighborhood study that really allowed us to think more about how to really dig deeper into those mechanisms of equity and how we show up in a neighborhood strategy to to create sort of like these uh, cycles of black home ownership, the realities of that really move us out of these food desert mentalities and the issues that come with just not having resources in the community at all. And so we started with what was really an urban design and strategy project with other collaborators in Detroit, Carl Bullifer, who now runs Bold Studio. I was in a, a bit of a class of people who I think also stepped away from larger firms to run their own studios. And I think it was absolutely, I don't speak for anybody else, but I do think this is absolutely about me really being able to invest in my interests and in my um, actual kind of like authentic design purpose. Like I think mm -hmm. we can design a ton of things, um, but I wanted to really try to see if I could survive and see uh, what the market would provide to me. And it was like the projects I had been searching for since high school came to me naturally. And I mm -hmm. cannot be more grateful for that. And it, maybe it's not as natural as I'm thinking, but it really was a function of just knowing people who have the ability and have the capacity to be uh, making this sort of impact here. And so I started Revision and I continued through this neighborhood project. And now that project is even turning more into both where we were maybe at 30,000 feet above, just looking to see what the neighborhood needs were and how we were going to meet those needs in, you know, a decade of time or more. Now those projects where we said some housing should probably go here, some open lot activation should probably happen here. These mixed use projects need to happen here. There are clinics and all of these other sort of like grocery store ideas and things so that we can actually provide for what was uh, discussed in some of the community meetings. And so that project, I think, and the continuation of that project is really what we care about. It's like at any scale, whether we are, you know, in an airplane 
trying to see what the neighborhood, like even just where the gaps are or where we, how far away we are from, you know, the nearest healthy food option, how far away we are from the nearest sort of like uh, employment support or uh, new economies and those sorts of things. Do we have parks in the neighborhood? Do we have recreational activities? Are are those available? Then we can also get down to sometimes, some days I'm just excited if I pick a good doorknob, right? Like, or if I'm, if I'm doing, (laughs) we've done uh, graphic design for black film companies. We've done graphic design for black law firms. The majority of our clients are black and investing in their communities and in their people. And so I think that's been a wildly unique experience. Like I don't know very many other architects. I'm sure that there are examples of it, but I never in my wildest dreams thought that this would be the experience that I would have for years. I was terrified that going off on my own, I would just be kind of hungry and looking for work and not being able to get it. But it's been interesting, especially for the neighborhood project. I So you guys probably know Ujiji Davis. She is an illustrious landscape architect um, and urban designer. And we went to school together. And now we're- I did not know that. Yeah. So we went to Cornell together. She's one year younger, I believe. And we've always just been big fans of each other, just big <laughs> cheerleaders. She was at Smith Group. I was at Gensler. Um, we came from New York to Detroit together. Um, And now we get to collaborate on community centers, on neighborhood strategy, on open lot projects. Like there's so many lovely collaborations happening with other black architects and other architects of color, which I just couldn't get. That's what we talked about at the beginning of the interview. Just couldn't get that um, in my career in the way that I really wanted it. And I had no idea that most of this was just us creating it and actually us all getting to a point where we were comfortable enough and actually skilled enough to be able to go off on our own. So I think all of our revision work, I think, is about allowing people to feel good in the editing process, both in a space in sometimes in consulting work and writing work that we're doing and the research that we're doing. We're editing histories we're editing the way that people teach. Um, we're revising and revising. We know the design process is just about evolving and revising. And so mm-hmm. we really wanted to just have a, a bit of a play on the word uh, revision and then move into actual projects that kind of make these really interesting impacts at any scale. And so that's where we are now. I think it's still the crafting of the practice and the research portion of things and being able to do all of these different facets that I've talked about. But I will say that we have had an incredible beginning. And again, just the gratitude that I have felt in the support and the collaboration in the projects that we've seen, the clients that we've seen, Um, and how this is unfolding has been incredible to me. I think it's been um, an interesting challenge. Sandra, once once you said that, actually in a panel discussion, we were discussing this and you said that you had uh, a living MBA because you had run your own firm. And I, I certainly feel like I have learned like decades worth of knowledge of uh, business related information um, and who I am as a leader, who I am as, uh, you know, a manager, who I am as a designer, um, all of these things, like when I'm left to my own 
to sort of intuition. And so it has been a wild ride of sorts, but it's been uh, one of the most fulfilling things I could have done. So I'm really, really happy and excited for the future of Revision too, even though we've done really cool things. That's amazing. So, I mean, it is, it's like, um, like I said, maybe it'll come in, in the future studios, something you could teach someone how to talk about practice more and how to start your practice and how to, you know, create different business models of what type of practice you would like to do. It's just something that was never discussed yeah. before. And it's like, it is a part of you, right? The firm is like, this is what I want to do as a, as a company, as a entity. And I want the entity to be able to produce this. And, Mm -hmm. but just realizing that you have that power that you, you don't have to come out and work for somebody else. You could actually come out and like I said, and do this yourself and make the impact that you want to make. But some of it is discovery too. It's just like, like what you were talking about with the fellowship program, being able to talk about maybe creating a stream work of how things could happen Mm -hmm. is, is remarkable in itself. It's just like, like I said, I feel like I stumbled through, oh yeah, I'm gonna start my business and I'm gonna do this. (laughs) You know, it's like, I wasn't like, I didn't, didn't, it's like, it's not until later that I got into other programs and uh, different things like the, you know, Goldman Sachs small business program. And they're asking you like, what is your exit strategy? What are you going to do at the end of your business? Like, I have no idea. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do tomorrow. In my business. <laughs> just, you know, just how, to, but, but to start to think about things and, 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 and planning a framework and a, and the time frame that you say, okay, by this time, I want my firm to do this. And mm-hmm. you really, when you make, start to make those steps, that's what happens at the other end. But it is, it is amazing. Just uh, hearing your journey, hearing your, your, you know, your, your way through entrepreneurship is, 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 it's hard to teach somebody that. It's hard to, you know, tell somebody this is how it works. You're making this happen every day, right? Mm-hmm. There is no magic book, but it's, you know, you're doing it day by day. And every step that you make, every decision that you make is, is molding this practice. This practice is becoming an entity that is going to have a history, that is going to have a legacy. It's going to have a portfolio. It's going to be, you know, a mini student that you <laughs> roll out at the end. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I could teach a course on this just yet, but what I will say is we are learning every day and this is what I would hope the students that I've had understand they can do sooner. So like if I, and that's, that's part of why I find it so interesting. Uh, Like the people that we work with are young and uh, sometimes our collaborators are, you know, peers, but a lot of times we are collaborating with and or teaching like really young students. I didn't really see the examples when I was in school of someone who could be doing this. I didn't see like a Samantha Josephat. I didn't see me. I didn't see Sandra at the time. You know, like I was sure that I had to go like abroad or something, or I would have to work with a group that was working on things out of the country or something like that. And so I would love for students to at least leave school. And I think it's happening naturally now. A lot of students are looking for firms that are intentionally making a bigger social impact. They cannot just be kind of flying above um, and doing these projects that aren't sensitive to communities of color or making some sort of social progress. And so we are absolutely learning about the business models and the methods and strategies that actually allow us to do that authentically and Mm -hmm. allow us to do it in a way that is not as Um, extractive of our clients and our communities. And so 
I'm thrilled. I can't say I figured anything out <laughs> perfectly, but I will say um, you paved the way for this. A lot of you <laughs> both have paved the way for a lot of us who are just looking to do something different in our industry, who are not sure that it's possible, but absolutely are not willing to not give it a try. I think you are both really amazing examples of that. And so without you guys, it doesn't really happen. And that's why I think generationally, we are trying at least to be somewhat of an example and give a little bit of a push to others who might want to do something similar. So, well, thank you for that. Thank you for that. But, right, really. uh, you know, it's, it's all coming back to service. Mm -hmm. And we're noticing in a lot of our interviews, Black architects look at serving others and want to impact their communities in a positive way. Uh, and you are definitely doing that in unique ways. Mm -hmm. You know, not a, not a traditional architecture firm. Uh, you have many facets to how you bring your work to the community and work with the community. You know, not working on the community, working with the community. Exactly. So um, Absolutely. Uh, that community focus and service just permeates, you know, black architects work. And I have to say, this is the perfect time to start yeah. or be in a black, like I said, be a black firm owner to be mm -hmm. practicing it is it, just to look back on it. I can't believe it's coming on like 15 years from when I first kind of really did my firm like full time till now. Oh. And just look back on how things have changed. And um, this is like the perfect storm, right? For everybody to like make their mark, make their, like you said, step out on faith, whatever it is that you need to hear. But this is the time for the Black architect to make their mark in architecture. It's almost like I can feel history being made now. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's hard to put into words, but it's like because the door is open more than it has been open before. Mm hmm it should only make a, a large, you know, kind of catapult to the next generation of what a firm owner, a black firm owner could be. Mm -hmm. um, it is, this is, this is the moment where it's making that change and making that way to see how we can impact communities, how we can build architectural wealth, which I think that's important mm -hmm. as well as a firm mm -hmm. owner to be able to be a firm owner and to be profitable and to be able to, like I said, provide for yourself. And your employees and this this is that time to make that jump you know can we get more larger firms out of this mm -hmm. movement that's happening right now can mm -hmm. we get you know can we get that legacy of firms to start to happen like we're looking at moody nolan like they're like they're the only legacy multi-generational large firm that we've seen can we get another one of those out of this moment is happening right now um i'm excited to see that i hope so yeah, I think too. so, too. I, I genuinely do feel the same way that this is um, the timing of this matters a lot. I think if I tried to do this in 2016, I don't know that it would have resulted yeah. in the same thing. And I don't know that I would have been ready for it. Um, just the capacity and the energy that it takes to run a studio, I think is I think people think that you're going to have more free time or something or like you're going <laughs> to like do fewer things um, when you do. Instead of one job, you probably do about 12. And then yeah. like, there's there's a lot there. Um, but I will say, yeah, and part of what's good about Noma as well is that the connections, I think, are there for the legacy to be built and perhaps to be supported in a different way. But yeah, I think 
like I said, there's just a class of people, especially in Detroit that I'm feeling more directly, but even in my peers from school or from the NOMA kind of like understanding across the country, there are new black firms forming that are strong. They're running strong and they're um, focused on these unconventional approaches to how we're actually going to get the work done in communities that really need it. And so I'm excited about that. I think like I'm optimistic and feeling very, very strongly about the future of black architecture here um, and beyond. And so, yeah, that's, that's why I think that, 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 you know, the economy part is so important. Like, like what the Dame, Damon and I always say the generation that we were in is, is what they're saying is the, the generation that's missing in the profession now, not even just black, right. They are like senior level, you know, architect that has, you know, so many years of experience. There's a lot less of those people now in the profession that we have to be weary mm-hmm. that we don't have a, another gap, you know, come and think about that as, especially as black architects and not having that gap because right. of recessions coming through and people like, okay, I'm going to switch and pivot and I'm going to go do another do career else. and right and do yeah. something else. And I'm not in architecture, but I think if we are cognizant toward, towards the economics of it and that we are building legacy, think about that as we're, like you say, as you have this nice cohort, because it's like, I have to say that I felt like we were alone. 2008, yeah. we were in the middle, middle of the recession. We were like, okay, we're going to do this. And it's like, oh my goodness. Right. I was like, yeah, there's nobody else, else doing like, this. Hey, who, who else, else is doing this? Who can all? I talk to? Where's right. my therapist? Right. It's like, like I said, it's just the perfect time. Think about that cohort you got. Think about the next generation and how you bring those, you know, that next generation along. And then we could get you know, we could build as, and use NOMA to build that across the country, that mm-hmm. things are actually stacking up to make things happen. And we not get those gaps. And how do we, you know, how do we think about the economy of things and, and, and to move the needle and, and keep Become more sustainable. Yeah, to become more mm-hmm. sustainable. Be sustainable. Exactly. So exciting. I'm excited. A lot of great things playing out. I'm glad we're able to have this platform to talk to people about those different things that are happening. We, we thank you. We don't want to keep you all night. We know you've been working, working right. all day. But we, yeah, we thank you for your uh, your discussion today. I don't know if you have any uh, words of wisdom you want to leave with before you before we clock out. But It's been, all been words of it, wisdom. It has been. It has been. <laughs> it's full of wisdom. I do just want to say that I think this platform means everything to me and to us. I think the concept of this being possible is also just a marker in history that we're in a place where we can start to document and have the conversations and be so intentional about it. Um, And so again, just all the gratitude that I can share with everyone, but I'm so happy and thankful that we were able to have this conversation. I could talk to you guys all night. I won't, (laughs) but (laughs) I won't keep you guys all night, but I, um, I'm greatly, greatly appreciative. So thank you guys for having me. Oh, thank you for being on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E, we really would appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone else who would love it too, please share it with them. If you're looking for more content like this, Hidden in Plain Sight is part of the Gable Media Network. You can find similar shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And before you go, if you haven't already, 
Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on the contributions of our upcoming contemporary and trailblazing architects. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast, where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of like dresses or whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, just taking it day by day, but not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives.